if we know the end, does it determine our interactions? Right? If we know the end, if we see the ending, does it shape the way we live? Now, in our modern technological world, we have these wonderful new things in the home. Maybe you guys have one, a DVR, right? Digital video recorder. You can record live TV, pause live TV, which is really fun. But a lot of people um, like, you know, record shows and watch shows later. I know some guys that do this with football. Now, I work Sundays, obviously, so I don't get to watch a lot of football. But I have yet to actually bring myself to record one of these things because by the time I get home, I usually catch the fourth quarter of the afternoon game and then I'll watch the Sunday night game. Well, what happens at halftime? I then find out everyone who won or lost the game all day long. So the point of sitting there on Monday going, oh yeah, I know the outcome of this one. You see all the good plays of the halftime show. So I've never brought myself to, to want to watch something because I already know the outcome. So by knowing the outcome, it does sort of shape my interaction, but we're talking on a, on a life scale. If we know the outcome, we know the end, will it drive us to live differently? And I would offer you this morning that there are two groups of people that we could look at, lives we could peer into it and get a really good example of how this works. And, and that's this, it's small children and the terminally ill. The two drastically different groups, I get that. But on the one hand, you have small children. And think about this. You take a small child, you know, however, if you guys were here for Christmas Eve, you saw my son Ethan rubbing his face. He was not wiping his nose on my sleeve. He was here. You put him in front of the dinner table. You offer that child their favorite dessert. You put it on the table. But to get there, what? They've got to eat dinner. Now, you know, odds are that if you offer up something that they really, really want at the end, they're going to gut through whatever's in front of them for dinner. Staring at their favorite dessert, staring at the plate of Brussels sprouts, going, uh, uh, I don't know. Okay. They operate out of a sense of hope. Hope for what is to come. Right? Hope that this won't be so bad because that's going to be great. Now, at the total other end of the spectrum, you have those that are terminally ill. And their mode of operating, or their inspiration for operating, is fear. Now, not fear of death, per se, not fear of the afterlife. Fear of leaving stones unturned. You see, suddenly when life ends up you know there's an expiration date. You know that you have limited time. The next thing you know, you will want to spend the time you can investing in the people around you. Making sure that they know how special they are. How loved they are. How cherished they are. Whether it's your spouse or the mailman that's been bringing you mail for 20 years, you will treat that dude way differently if you know your time is limited. Just to make sure that he knows that he's loved and appreciated by you. You don't want to leave any stone unturned. So it's in our context this morning of Second Peter that I think we can find inspiration for ourselves to live out of these two motivators. And looking at these two specific trends of life, which we'll get to. 
First, we've got an entire chapter of the Bible to get through and an entire book of the Bible to review. So are you ready? Here we go. Chapter 3 of 2 Peter. I'm going to bring this down here. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you as I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, as though they would do something else. just want to clarify. And following their own evil desires, they will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died... Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the time, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. As they, as, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, this morning as we seek to draw from your scripture. We seek to draw from your word to us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes, quicken our hearts, clear our minds, God, so that we would see, hear, and perceive what you have for us this morning. God, that it wouldn't just rest solely on an information gathering, but God, it would settle into our hearts and change. Change us. Change the way we go about living. God, that we would pursue you. So God, be in this place this morning. Resonate among us, God. 
Bring us to life as you bring your word to life. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we start off by understanding that this is Peter's second letter. Hence, the title of the book is Second Peter. There you go. Lesson's over. Go home. Peter writes this letter. He says, this is my second letter to you. Well, who's it to? We understand it's to believers abroad that are dealing with persecution. De- uh, believers abroad that are dealing with suffering, that are dealing with scorn, that are dealing with issues. Sound familiar? Maybe a little bit? And he writes them this letter and he, he explains why. I write it to you, he says, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. Now, if we point directly back to first, the first chapter, Peter says it was the word of the prophets that were fulfilled that shine out like light in the darkness. And he says you would do well to pay attention to it. It is a staunch reminder. It's a reiteration of a point he's already made. It's redundancy for our benefit. That we would remain stimulated, understanding that the words God has given us are important and therefore life. That we would continue to remember and that we would be stirred up by it. He says this, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing. I can't get past that. I don't, not, I'm just going to move on though. (laughs) As I don't know. And following their own evil desires. So, despite the scoffing, it's not just a matter of that. Which To make sure we're clear, scoffer, mocker, hater, someone who is divisive, doubter, someone who seeks to shake the foundations of what you believe, they will come in the last days. More importantly than what they're doing is they're seeking their own desires, their own evil desires. In other words, they're living an inward selfish existence. Broken. Doubting, separated from God, and they come in, and the question is, where is this coming that He has promised? Where is this coming He's promised? Now, I want to peek back at this and look. Peter writes that in the last days, these men will come. Obviously, we could sit here and pull apart and say, well, Peter, um, those guys have been around for a long time. Last days, are we? Yes? No? Maybe? I don't know. You guys remember, we've just spent an entire year devoted to the book of Revelation. We have pulled it apart. We've sought out every chapter. We've dug into it. We step back and examine it, and as Lance proved to us, it gives us options. We weren't given any clear timelines, we weren't given any definitive dates, none of that. We're all still sitting here going, well, there's a lot of options there for us to sift through still. After spending almost a year in the book, we're still going, ah, okay. I get a greater picture of some things, but I'm still left in some way going, I don't get it. Welcome to my world. And still my stance is the same. It hasn't changed in six months since I came and preached for two weeks, chapter seven and eight. Right? I don't, I haven't changed my stance. All of those things that we learned, all of those options, 
to understand the last days are not so that we can cram information into our heads. Not so that we could know more stuff. It is so that we could deal with understanding that the last days will come. And as Peter deals in this chapter with how we should then live. But more importantly to know that as these people are are, are wandering through, because that's their big doubt, and, and the question that they're asking, where is this where is this coming? It's not just that. That's not the step. I mean, that's one bit of it. The real meat of the question they're asking is simply this. Where is your God? Where is your God? He said he was coming. He's not here. He said it was soon. It's been a long time. Our fathers have all died. Things go on just like it was back in creation all the way up to here. Still, he's not back yet, right? You keep saying he's coming. He's not back. Where is your God? Peter gives us an outline. Because our temptation is to dive in and enter into the debate. These people are lost, and and Peter explains that because they blatantly forget who God is. On purpose, they set aside creation, sustaining of all that is by God, to bypass that and say, well, see, he's not here. So where is he? But here's what Peter writes in verse 8. But do not, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Pause. Just to clarify, this is not a mathematical equation. You have not suddenly been given insight into how the Lord deals with time. Then you start applying it, going, okay, this all starts to make sense. It is merely an analogy. It's a picture saying, listen, with God, our time is not His time, and His time isn't our time. We deal with God like it should be. You know, you hang around church long enough, you hear, oh, well, God, God is a, He's an 11th hour God. I say that. Then I kick myself, but I say that. The problem is, it's not His 11th hour. It's our 11th hour. We're the only ones freaking out about it. We're the only ones holding on with our nails going, Oh, is God going to show up? God's in the position to go, Of course I'm going to show up. And I'm going to show up when it's perfect. His timing is perfect. Yet we keep trying to stuff Him into our timelines and our boxes to make Him do what we want to fit our needs or our desires or our beliefs. Yet Paul, or Peter says, oh, Peter, I keep doing that. All three services, Peter, Paul, Paul, Peter, Peter, Paul, Mary, whatever. Man. He says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that simple statement, which is not really a simple statement, Peter gives us incredible insight in how we deal with these people that come asking the question, well, where's the coming? You guys keep saying the end times are coming and God's coming back. Oh, but where is he? Versus pushing back when someone pushes in versus engaging in the argument. Instead of saying, I'm going to now debate you into the kingdom of heaven. I know stuff. I'm going to give you answers and timelines and deadlines and oh, 
How about this? Because I love answering questions with questions. Ask my wife. She's a big fan of that. How about looking at that person and saying, hey, did you ever stop to think? Maybe, just maybe, he's waiting for you. Drop that on him. Let him think about that for a second. Huh? Yeah. You ever stop to think maybe God is holding back because he's calling out to you. And he loves you. And so he's not destroying everything because he wants you to join us up there. And then hug them. Maybe not. I don't know. The issue is dealing with the scoffers, the mockers, the haters, the doubters, the dividers, whatever it is, in a way that is in contrast to what they're expecting from you. In a way that would reflect who Christ is into their lives. Deal with them in that fashion. Because here's how it goes on. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And I want you to know this is the extent to which Peter deals with the end times in this passage. There you go. That's it. Since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming... That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. So there, in those four verses, we have something that's posed to us that changes everything. The question is right there in the middle. In light of all of these things, in light of all you know, in light of the end coming, and the hope we hold on to, what sort of people ought we to be? And I say we, because it's written to us. I've written to you, and I'm excluded. It's us. What sort of people ought we be? That's the question. How then shall we live it's easy to push back it's easy to engage in the argument it's easy to say I know a lot of stuff it's hard to love irritating people it's hard to love people that beat up on you but Jesus did just that and he calls us to go and do likewise how then shall we live there are answers in here In verse 10 he says, the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, it's coming. And it's going to happen and it's going to be quick. So you don't know when it's going to spring up on you. Live with urgency. Live a life of passion pursuing Christ. Do so with urgency. Now not the urgency of someone running around like a chicken with their head cut off but deliberately pursuing God in all that you do. Intentionally going after all that He has to offer. 
Because it will come like a thief. And then this. The earth will melt with heat, but in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to new heaven and a new earth and the home of righteousness. We ought to be people that resonate with that and hold out hope in all that we have. That at the end, God is calling us to a place that our minds cannot fathom. That we ought to have hope. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort, every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, that his patience means salvation, not just for me, but for all. Not just for you, but for all who will come and take part as he beckons. How then shall we live? With urgency, with hope, and with a healthy fear. See, if we dial back to our intro to that first example of that child, and we look in this passage and see in verse 13 that here is this hope of a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness, this amazing place. That, my friends, is the dessert. And on this side, it's the Brussels sprouts. I don't know, I'm a fan of Brussels sprouts, so think of something you dislike. For me, it would be tomatoes. Oh, if you know me well, you know I have this heebie thing about tomatoes. It's bad. But in the midst of that, would you understand that to carve your way through this, to get to that, it's worthwhile? Would you hold on to that hope? That God has placed you in front of that plate of Brussels sprouts for a reason. The end is coming, and it will be glorious. Then on the flip side of that, the issue of the fear. Again, not fear of death, not fear of the end, but a fear that we will leave too many stones unturned. That too many people around us will not know the love, the grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. That we will not have lived in an effective manner so as to show them. We will not have shared with them and offered out to them all that we can by our lives, by our care, by our words. With urgency with hope, with fear. Because in this passage, when the scoffers come, and they will, how you deal with them, how our lives are lived out in front of them, because honestly, they're coming in, they're sorting out their own evil desires, but again, they're broken, they're lost. They may not even know it. You can't forget that a scoffer, even though they're a scoffer, is still a person made in the image of God. And that inside, 
That place is not being filled by His presence. They are distant from Him. They have pushed Him away. They're seeking themselves. Yet somewhere in there, His heart was designed for God. And God is reaching out. And how you live offers a glimpse to those people when they see it played out in front of them. I'll share with you a story. As I studied for this, I uh, reading commentaries, and I stumbled across this commentary in which the commentarian tells a story in direct correlation to this passage. And he says, I was invited to speak at a, a conference. And as he spoke and got finished, a man approached him. And the man purposely sought him out and began to share a story with him. He explained that he was a master sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. And that every time he got a batch of new recruits, in other words, guys that had just come out of training and were coming to their first duty station, every time he got these new young men in his grasp, he had but one goal. And that was to destroy their faith. That was his goal. That he would strip away any remnant of Christianity that he could find in them. He would engage them in that way. And so as they would come in, he'd push on them, he explained. I'd push against their faith. And initially they would push back. They would argue back. They would, err. I would push, they would push. Well, then I would push again. And it never failed every time. That push, that second push by the believers was a little weaker. So I would push again. And it would get weaker and weaker from their side until finally they just gave up. And every ounce of faith, Everything that I saw external about them that, that told me they were a Christian was gone. And he took pride in this. Every time a group walked through, that was his goal. He said, until about six months ago, a new group came in and these guys I could tell were Christians right off the bat, so I went at them. He said, I pushed in. And they didn't push back. He said, when I pushed in, they went around. The argument, they didn't get baited in. He said, they treated me with kindness. They treated me with love. They engaged me with respect. So I pushed again. And the more I pushed, the more they loved. Imagine how frustrating that is to that guy. He said, so finally they invited me to come here. So out of morbid curiosity, here I am. And that night, he was engaged with the gospel for the first time. And in that night, recognized the wretched nature of who he had been, his sin before God, and he accepted Christ as a Savior. And sought this man out, the speaker, this commentarian, to share this with him. They continue to stay in contact. The guy now, instead of trying to break everyone's faith, is now finding recruits that don't know Christ and leading them to faith, leading Bible studies, sharing Jesus with everyone he comes in contact with. I mean, that's just all because these guys, these young men, decided we're going to engage differently. I'm not going to get baited into the argument. I'm not going to be drawn in to the fight 
just for fighting's sake. I'm going to push back the way Jesus would. And how would Jesus push back? Let's think about it. When Judas betrayed him, Jesus washed his feet. When they accused him, Jesus stood silent. That's where we're called. And that's how these guys engaged. And a life was changed because of it. And an eternity was shaped because of it. So for us, the question is not what we know. The question is what we do with what we know. Do we move from the area of knowledge into the great, wonderful place of wisdom, which is where knowledge actually gains momentum? Or do we keep holding on to the stuff on our head, hoping someday that's how we'll win some people for the kingdom. You see, guys, again, we've, we've spent this whole year looking at the end times. We've spent this entire year pulling apart the book of Revelation. But for what? It was a hard year for me. I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit difficult for me because I'm much more an application guy. And, and when I get floods of information, I always try to hold it back and go, wait, what can I do with it? What can I do with it as it comes? I can't, like, save it and try and process later. I don't have that much processing power. Yet what we found at the end of that study, at the end of the year, at the end of the book of Revelation, and even now, the question is not what do you know, it's what will you do with it? Will you love God more? Will you love people more? Will you move toward Christ? Because here's what Peter finishes with. Paul, he's referring to, writes the same way in all the letters, speaking in them of these matters. He, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. You guys, we've got to seek out solid foundational teaching. Stay away from those who will lead you astray. Be wise, be aware, be in the Word. Because there are crazy people preaching out there. I could be one of them. You don't know. But he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge. Wow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, now and forever. That you would grow, that you would pursue, that you would live a life in Christ that echoes out His character and nature to those around you. It's not an overnight process. It doesn't mean that the minute you start doing it, everyone around you is going to throw their hands up and go, Oh my gosh, we've all seen the error of our ways, and now we're going to repent. It can be a long, frustrating, arduous process, but continue to pursue Christ, because that is where we are called We are not called to be the storers of information. We are called to be the sharers of God's grace, mercy, and love. That is who we are. And as we look forward to the year of 2010 and the year of servanthood, I pray that we would really mull over these things. That we would consider where we are called and we would consider how we interact. Would we live lives full of passion for Christ 
and compassion for the people around us. That is where we're called. And that is where I hope we seek to go each and every day. Would you pray with me? God, as the worship team comes, I just pray that you would continue to move among us. God, would you open our hearts and minds? Would you continue to help us chew on this question? What will we do with the knowledge in the end? How will we live? To live a holy and godly life is a pursuit we could discuss, but we'd be here for weeks. And maybe at some point we'll continue, and and hopefully, God, we draw that out every day or every weekend. God, that we would spend time with you, that we would pursue you, to know you more, to resonate who you are to people, to serve them. God, come through this place as we finish in worship. God, continue to stir our hearts because you are incredible. And you've given us so much that we can hope for. And I pray that we would be driven to share that with everyone around us. So God, be in this time, be in this place. Thank you. Go out with us. In Jesus' name. Amen.